be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 28 in its entirety. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham." So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take himself a wife from there, and that he had blessed him. He gave him a charge, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother, and had gone to Padan Aram. Also, Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahaloth, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife in addition to the wives he had. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head. He lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south, and in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. One of the key moments in all of human history was the call of Abraham in Genesis 12 and the promises that God made to him as part of that call. These promises constitute the body of the Abrahamic covenant. But that covenant is then later expanded and explained to him um, in other places of Scripture. Our confession uses the language of farther steps in chapter 6 when it discusses God's covenant. It says that the promise of the gospel was first revealed to Adam in the garden in Genesis 3, and afterwards, by farther steps, until the full discovery thereof 
was completed in the New Testament. So when we come to the covenant promises made to Abraham, we find that covenant contains a promise of the gospel, a promise of salvation. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12, 3. That promise is later made more explicit when God says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The blessing will come through one of Abraham's descendants. The promises are made to Abraham and his seed, and the apostle Paul will later make the point in his letter to the churches of Galatia that that seed is not plural, but singular, referring to Christ as the seed of Abraham in whom the promises find their ultimate fulfillment. This is incredibly important because it demonstrates that the Abrahamic covenant should be read through the interpretive lens of Christ. As Samuel Renahan has said in his book on the covenants, the Abrahamic covenant looks forward to one through whom all nations can be united and blessed not just one people in one place. The typology of the Abrahamic covenant and its special relation to Christ according to the flesh make it a covenant of guardianship. The purpose of the Abrahamic covenant is to bring the new covenant into existence by bringing its founder, head, and mediator into existence. Christ is the end at which the Abrahamic covenant aims. So when our text this morning extends the promises of that covenant to Jacob, we should read those promises as gospel promises. The Spirit tells us in Galatians that the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, "...in you all the nations shall be blessed." So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Well, since that promise was a promise of the gospel when it was made to Abraham, then it is likewise a promise of the gospel when it is made to Jacob here in Genesis chapter 28. We're also told in Galatians that Christ was crucified for our redemption, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So when Jacob receives the blessing of Abraham here in Genesis 28, that's the same gospel promise of redemption through Christ that Galatians is referring to. So the main point of this text this morning is this. The blessing of Jacob was a gospel promise of the coming of Christ, the one and only mediator between God and man. Now, Jacob was blessed by Isaac in the previous chapter, but Isaac blesses him again here in chapter 28, and it's here that Jacob encounters God and is blessed directly by God himself. So let's work our way through the chapter, look at the various elements of Isaac's blessing, uh, his charge to Jacob, Esau's response, and then finally, Jacob's encounter with the Lord. And we'll see how the promise It's not only narrowed down from the line of Abraham now to one of Jacob's descendants, but also that the promise is revealed in a special way through through Jacob's dream. The story really begins in the last verses of chapter 27, where Rebekah went to Isaac to complain of Esau's wives and insist that Jacob not take a wife from among the Canaanites. Chapter 28 
picks up with Isaac calling Jacob and charging him with the task of journeying to Padan Aram to find a wife. This really should have been done sometime before. I mean, Jacob is 77 years old at this point. He's not taken a wife from among the Canaanites, which shows his devotion to God and to the covenant promises. The Canaanites have been excluded from the covenant promises. They've been devoted to destruction. And this is why Abraham had sent a servant to find a wife for Isaac among his own relations. And Isaac should have already made arrangements to find acceptable wives for his sons, particularly for Jacob, who inherits the covenant promises. But he waits until Jacob is 77 years old. He doesn't even initiate it himself. Rebekah initiates it because of the threat that Esau is breathing out that he intends to kill his brother. But then Jacob does heed Rebekah's words, and he does charge Jacob using very similar language to the charge that Abraham gave his servant concerning a wife for Isaac. But instead of sending a servant, Isaac sends Jacob himself. In part, this is surely due to the fact that Esau at this time is threatening to kill Jacob. So Jacob is sent away for his own safety. But we can see in this a certain punishment for his own sins. As we noted last week, Rebekah loved Jacob, and then she was forced to send him away, never to see him again in this life. And that was a direct result of her sins. Now we see that Jacob, in a shadow of things to come, with the nation that will later bear his name, is sent into exile out of the land of promise as a result of his sin, but with the promise of being called back at some point in the future. But before he sends his son and heir away, Isaac once again blesses Jacob. This blessing in verses 3 and 4 takes the form of a prayer. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples, Give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So there's an echo here of Genesis 3 of the Garden of Eden, the commission given there by God to Adam to be fruitful and multiply. Isaac prays that God would cause Jacob to do so, to make him an assembly of peoples. The Hebrew word here, which is most often translated congregation, uh, the word that's translated as assembly here, it's used throughout the Old Testament in reference to Jacob's descendants, usually in conjunction uh, with another word. It's translated as congregation, but here are some of the ways it is translated. The congregation of Jacob, the congregation of Israel, the congregation of the children of Israel, the congregation of the Lord, the congregation of God, the congregation of the righteous, the congregation of the saints. All told, this word is used about 70 times in reference to Jacob's descendants. Now, there are two words in the New Testament that mean the same thing, assembly or gathering, and they're likewise translated as congregation at different times. And these words are very familiar to us. Ecclesia, which is most often translated as church, though it truly means assembly. The English word church actually traces its origins to a compound Greek word meaning house of the Lord, which we'll see referenced later in this chapter. The other Greek word that is occasionally translated as congregation in the New Testament is synagogue, which, you guessed it, is often translated as synagogue. 
So Isaac, in effect, prays that God would make Jacob's descendants into an assembly, a synagogue, a church of peoples. Notice the plural. It is plural in the Hebrew. This is just one more hint in the text of the gospel being preached to the patriarchs in the blessings and promises of the covenant. Christopher Wright, in his book, The Mission of God, says, The ingathering of the nations was the very thing Israel existed for in the purpose of God. It was the fulfillment of the bottom line of God's promise to Abraham. Since Jesus was the Messiah of Israel, and since the Messiah embodied in his own person the identity and mission of Israel, then to belong to the Messiah through faith is to belong to Israel. And to belong to Israel is to be a true child of Abraham, no matter what a person's ethnicity is. For if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So the blessing that Isaac prays over his son Jacob contains within it the promise of the gospel, the ingathering of the nations to Christ, the seed of Abraham and the seed of Jacob. In verse 4, he explicitly prays that God would give Jacob the blessing of Abraham, that is, the promise of the Messiah. Matthew Henry says this is a gospel blessing, the blessing of church privileges, that is, the blessing of Abraham, which is conferred upon the Gentiles through faith. He also prays for the inheritance in the land, which was previously promised to Abraham, and we'll talk more about that in a few moments. But we might ask why Isaac blesses Jacob a second time, and and with very much the same blessing. Well, I think it is to confirm in his own mind that he has now submitted himself to the will of God in choosing Jacob, and to confirm for Jacob that the blessing really is his and this time willingly, not through deceit. But then having received his father's blessing, Jacob leaves his home and journeys towards Syria to find the household of his mother's brother Laban, and among them to find a wife that will be acceptable to the covenant. Now, verses 6 through 9, we see Esau's reaction to the news that his brother has been blessed again by their father and sent away to find a wife. In verse 6, he notices the blessing and the charge not to take a wife from among the Canaanites. Now, Esau has already done that twice. And those wives were a grief of mind, we were told, to Isaac and Rebekah. It's the stated reason why Jacob is being sent away. Rebekah says she can't bear her life because of these wives Esau has taken. And if Jacob were to take a wife similarly, she would have nothing to live for. In verse 7, Esau notes that Jacob has obeyed the charge given by their parents and has, in fact, left on this journey. In verse 8, Esau sees that the Canaanite women were not pleasing to his father as wives for his sons. So then we come to verse 9. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife in addition to the wives he had. So Esau takes a wife from among the children of Abraham rather than the Canaanites. This seems to clearly be an attempt to earn favor with Isaac. His previous wives were a grief, so he tries again in hopes of gaining some favor and perhaps earning his way towards a better blessing. But his actions show a lack of spiritual insight. Matthew Henry, commenting on this verse, says, Carnal hearts are apt to think themselves as good as they should be, because in some one particular instance, they are not so bad as they have been. 
This choice of a wife is no doubt better than Esau's previous choices, but it still falls short for three reasons. First, this wife, being the daughter of Ishmael, is still among a people group that has been excluded from the promise of the land in the covenant. Second, she is his third wife. Polygamy is not the answer. Third, he is obviously seeking to please his father, Isaac, rather than seeking to please God. So once again, we see Esau's spiritual blindness and the contrast between him and Jacob. Jacob has refrained from marriage because of he's honoring the covenant. Esau is married multiple times, seeking to please men rather than God. So now we return once again to Jacob as he journeys towards Padan Aram. And as he journeys, Jacob stops for the night and sets up camp. He has no tent. He appears to have no servants or attendants with him. And so he uses a stone for a pillow and sleeps under the stars. Now that may sound uncomfortable, but remember, Jacob was a shepherd. He had likely spent countless nights sleeping under the stars while tending the flocks. And with a stone for his pillow, Jacob will have the best night's sleep of his life. For in his sleep, God speaks to him. But all we're told at this point in verse 11 is that he came to a certain place. And we're not told what that place was. And we'll find out later. And and the location has significance. Because years earlier, Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, had camped in this same location and had built an altar and worshipped the Lord. Now Jacob camps here, dreams, builds an altar, and worships the Lord. So Jacob comes to this place. He sets up camp for the night, and he falls asleep. And while he sleeps, he dreams, in verse 12. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, this is a well-known passage of Scripture. I'm sure you're all familiar with Jacob's ladder, as it is known. Not really Jacob's ladder. It would be more accurate to call it the Lord's ladder. Uh, But Jacob's ladder has found its way into popular culture. There are dozen songs by different bands with the title Jacob's Ladder, half a dozen novels, at least two horror movies, an exercise machine, even a flower named Jacob's Ladder. And of course, uh, there is the electrical arc device that you might see at a science museum where the arc goes back and forth like this and goes up between the two rods. It's called Jacob's Ladder. And there is the toy, Jacob's Ladder. I made two of those this week, intending to give them to the youngest members of our congregation who are not here today because of sickness. But this is Jacob's dream. He dreams of this ladder between heaven and earth, and it's become quite popular. What he sees here is a connection. He sees something that is connecting heaven and earth And the angels of God, God's spiritual messengers, are ascending and descending on the ladder, traveling between God's throne in heaven and his footstool on the earth in order to do the Lord's bidding. But the vision continues in verses 3 through 15 with the Lord speaking to Jacob from his exalted position at the top of the ladder. And so there are a couple of things to note about this dream. First, let's remember that it is a dream. 
what he sees in this dream doesn't necessarily describe reality. And what I mean is that just because Jacob saw this in his dream doesn't mean that in this location in the Middle East there is an unseen spiritual ladder that connects heaven and earth uh, that the angels actually travel back and forth between the two on this metaphysical ladder. In fact, there's good reason to think that what Jacob sees in his dream is a vision meant to communicate a spiritual truth. And we'll get to that shortly. But second, don't expect God to talk to you in this way. Don't, don't start analyzing your dreams, trying to figure out what they mean and what God is telling you in them. Remember Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. Dreams would be one of those various ways in which God spoke in times past. And we'll see more of this in the life of Joseph, Jacob's son. But it's actually a pretty rare event in the scriptures. Once you leave the book of Genesis, there are only four more occasions where it happens in the Old Testament. And only three people who experience it in the New Testament. Nowhere in the epistles are believers told to interpret their dreams or to desire dreams or to expect God to speak to them in their dreams. Looking to our dreams for communication from God would be to look for a private revelation. It would violate the doctrine of the sufficiency of scriptures. Martin Luther once said, From the beginning of the Reformation, I have asked God to send me neither dreams nor visions nor angels, but to give me the right understanding of his word, the Holy Scriptures. For as long as I have God's word, I know that I am walking in his way and that I shall not fall into any error or delusion. Don't try to interpret your dreams as messages from God. If you do, you are likely to fall into error or delusion. Instead, cling to the word, the Holy Scriptures that the Spirit has inspired and preserved for us. And finally, as we look at Jacob's dream, notice that the scriptural record focuses on the words God speaks to him far more than on the visual aspect of his dream. There is one verse in verse 12 where we have a description of the visual aspect of his dream, but then three verses containing the words of God. The important thing is the word of God. And we'll come back to verse 12 in a bit, but first let's look at what God says and what Jacob does in response to what God says. God reaffirms the covenant here and makes several promises to Jacob. In verse 13, God identifies himself and promises Jacob an inheritance in the land. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. Now this is important that Jacob see the continuity between himself and and his father and his grandfather. This is the same God who promised these same things to Abraham, now reestablishing the covenant with the same promises to Jacob. And he promises the land to Jacob's descendants. Of course, he means all of the promised land, all of Canaan, not just simply this one spot where Jacob slept for the night. Verse 14 is probably the most important verse in this speaking of God's. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
Here, Jacob is promised a multitude of descendants, just as Abraham had been promised. He's promised that they will spread abroad in every direction. And he's given the promise of the Messiah, the seed which will bring blessing to the whole world. This promise is made five times in Genesis, chapter 12, chapter 18, chapter 22, chapter 26, and finally here in chapter 28. Three times Abraham is told that his seed will be a blessing to the nations. Once Isaac is told, and finally here Jacob is told that his seed will bring a blessing to the nations. Clearly, this is an important aspect of the covenant promises. Christopher Wright says, Blessing for the nations is the bottom line, textually and theologically, of God's promise to Abraham. The story of how that blessing for all nations has come about occupies the rest of the Bible, with Christ as the central focus. Indeed, the closing vision of the canon, with people of every tribe and nation and language worshiping the living God, clearly echoes the promise of Genesis and binds the whole story together. And we're going to come back to that idea in a moment. But in verse 15, God adds an additional promise. He promises Jacob, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. This is a a promise of God's presence, his provision, and his protection. Now Jacob wakes up from this dream and he realizes that he is met with God. He says in verse 16, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid. He said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Why is Jacob afraid? John Gill says that Jacob was afraid not with a fear of the wrath and displeasure of God, but with a fear of his grace and goodness, not with a fear of distrust of it, of which he had just had a comfortable assurance, but with an awe of the greatness and glory of God, being conscious of his own unworthiness to receive such favors from him. The Lord God Almighty had just spoken to him and promised him great things, an inheritance in the land, a multitude of descendants, protection, provision. The Messiah as a blessing to all the families of the earth. He recognized he was undeserving of these promises. So what is his response to these words of God that God has spoken over him? Verse 18, Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. His response is worship. He erects the stone that he used as a pillow, as a sort of altar, anoints it with oil as an act of consecration and worship. Then in verse 19, and he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city had been Luz previously. The name Bethel is a compound of two Hebrew words, Beth meaning house and El as in Elohim meaning Lord. He calls it the house of the Lord. It's a place where God's presence is particularly obvious and where he is to be worshipped by his people, such as the church today. Our English word church means house of the Lord, and it is here in the assembly of the people of God that his presence is to be particularly obvious and where he is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth with fear and trembling. Jacob concludes his worship then with a vow in which he promises to worship God and to tithe. Verses 20 through 22. 
Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Now this shouldn't be read as Jacob bargaining with God. This shouldn't be read as, if God will do this, and I'm going to wait and see if he does, but if he does, then I'll worship him. Rather, it should be understood as, since God has promised to do this, then I'll worship him. John Gill and Matthew Henry both agree that a better translation would be, seeing God will be with me. Jacob isn't bargaining with God, but obligating himself in light of God's sure word. He obligates himself to faithful worship and to giving a tenth of all that God blesses him with back to God. Now, I don't know what form that took. Sacrifices, perhaps, offerings, giving to the poor, maybe, I don't know. But Jacob has pledged that he will give a tithe of all that God blesses him with back to the Lord. He's pledged himself to worship God and to show thankfulness for what God has done by giving back to the Lord. This is an example for us of Christian piety, to dedicate ourselves to worship God, seeing that He has promised to provide salvation and an inheritance in Christ. And in thankfulness for His provision, we are to give back to Him a portion of what He has given to us. So that's a summary of the events of the chapter, but now I want to spend the remainder of our time focusing on verses 12 and 14. And the idea that Christ is the central focus of the blessing. There are a number of things going on in this text. Beginning in verse 3, Isaac has prayed that God would bless Jacob and make you fruitful and multiply you. Now, as I said, there's an allusion here to Genesis 1, 28 in the original mandate to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and fill the earth. Their commission from God had been to expand the borders of the garden, to take dominion over the whole earth, ordering it, cultivating it, until the entire world became a temple filled with worshipers. Isaac alludes to that in his prayer. And then in verse 14, God says, And you also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then in verse 15, God promises to be present with him. So the implication is that as his descendants spread out in every compass direction, God's presence will go with them. On the surface, this is a promise to inherit the land of Canaan. But the promise of the land in the Old Covenant always pointed forward to Christ and his reign over all of creation. Psalm 72, speaking of the coming king, who is Christ, says, His large and great dominion shall from sea to sea extend. It from the river shall reach forth unto earth's utmost end. Now the prophets pick up on this language. Zechariah says in chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, in a passage that's very familiar to us, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. We recognize this is a prophecy concerning Christ. But the prophecy continues. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. 
He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Isaiah speaks of the sin-bearing servant and of the covenant of never-ending peace that he brings. And he says in chapter 54, Enlarge the place of your tent. Let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. So when God tells Jacob in verse 14, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south, and in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's an eschatological aspect to this promise. G.K. Beale points out in his biblical theology that several times in Genesis we see the commission of Genesis 1.28 restated to the patriarchs to be fruitful and to multiply. And that each time there are a number of common elements. One, God appears to them just as he did with Adam in the garden. Two, that they tabernacle, they dwell or they rest in that place where God has appeared to them. Three, that it is most often on a mountain. Four, that they build an altar and worship God. And five, that the place where these activities often occur is Bethel, the house of God. Beale then concludes, the patriarchs appear to have built these worship areas as impermanent miniature forms of sanctuaries that symbolically represented the notion that their progeny were to spread out to subdue the earth from a divine sanctuary in fulfillment of the commission of Genesis 1:28. And since Christ is indeed the focus of the blessing in verse 14, he is the seed from whom all in whom all the world will be blessed. And I think Beale is correct that this promise, this blessing is promising the temporal kingdom of, of Canaan, but it's pointing beyond that towards the final kingdom of Christ that encompasses all of creation under his righteous and everlasting reign. The promise of the land, Jacob's descendants, will expand to fill all of the earth during the reign of Jacob's seed, who is Christ, the coming king. So we see now that Christ sends his church to the ends of the earth to make disciples of all the nations in the Great Commission. So the bottom line of the promise is Christ. This promise of the blessing of the nations in the seed of Abraham has been made five times, as we noted earlier. This is the final time that it occurs here in Genesis. And as I said, God reveals his plan to man in steps over time, progressively revealing a little more of the plan. Here in Jacob's dream, we have a unique piece of information, that is, Jacob's ladder. Let's read verse 12 again and remember that Christ is the focus. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So we have a ladder that connects heaven and earth and on which God's angelic messengers travel to carry out his will and to report back to him. After he awakens from this dream, Jacob calls this location Bethel, the house of God. And he also says, this is the gate of heaven, the place where heaven is opened to man. The ladder would be what he has in mind when he says this. The ladder is what connects heaven and earth. It's, it's the gate, so to speak, allowing access to God. 
Earlier, I said there was good reason to believe that Jacob's dream was a visual meant to communicate a spiritual truth. Well, here is that truth. Jesus is the latter. He is the one who connects heaven and earth. He is the one through whom we all must go if we would have access to the Father. He is the gate of heaven. Jesus says these things about himself. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, verse 6. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. John 10, verse 7. More to the point, in John 1, when Jesus meets Nathanael, Nathanael is amazed that Jesus saw him sitting under the fig tree. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is Jesus telling us that he is Jacob's ladder. This was a prophetic dream that symbolized Christ. John Calvin says, He seems here, that is in John 1.51, to allude to the ladder shown in a vision to the patriarch Jacob. How excellent his advent is. He is marked through opening by it the gate of heaven that each one of us may enter there. What Jacob saw in his dream was communication between heaven and earth, a way of access to the throne of God in heaven. And we know now that the latter symbolized and typified Christ, the only mediator between God and man, the only means of access to the Father in heaven. The only way for man to approach his creator is through means of the Son, the seed of Abraham and of Jacob, who would bring a blessing to the nations by opening to them a way to be restored to fellowship with their creator. Matthew Henry says, He is this latter. The foot on earth is his human nature. The top in heaven is his divine nature. The former in his humiliation, the latter in his exaltation. All the intercourse between heaven and earth since the fall is by this latter. Christ is the way. All God's favors come to us and all our services go to him by Christ. If God dwell with us and we with him, it is by Christ. We have no way of getting to heaven but by this ladder. If we climb up any other way, we are thieves and robbers. The ladder represents Christ as the true and only mediator. He has reconciled things in heaven and things on earth in himself. He is the only way to the Father, and it is through him that the Father communicates the blessings of his grace to mankind. The angels descending from on high to minister to the saints in Christ and ascending on high, bearing aloft the prayers and praises of the saints to the throne room in heaven, which are then perfected by the mediation of the Son. John Gill says that the latter represents Christ as the only way to heaven and eternal happiness. The various steps to which are election in him, redemption by him, regeneration by his spirit and grace, the several graces of his spirit, faith, hope, and love, justification by his righteousness, pardon by his blood, adoption through him, and the resurrection of the dead. Our confession says in chapter 1, paragraph 5, that one of the ways in which we can know that the Bible is the Word of God, is that it abundantly evidences itself, and then it gives us a list of those evidences. And one of the things it says is that the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole. 
the consent of all the parts. It all agrees together. There are no contradictions in the Scripture. But then the scope of the whole, what does that mean? Richard Muller points out that it is particularly important that the contemporary English meaning of scope, the full extent or range or intention of a thing, be excluded. The original Greek, skopos, and Latin, scopus, indicates the center or bullseye of a target. Indeed, in the first Helvetic confession, scopus translates der Zweck of the German original. The term is rightly understood, therefore, not as the full extent, range, or intention of all Scripture, but as the aim, purpose, goal, and center, indeed the bullseye of the biblical target. In other words, the scope of Scripture is Christ. The glory of God in Christ is the target that all of Scripture is aimed at. Benjamin Keach put it this way, Christ is the mystery wrapped up in the gospel. He is the scope of all the scripture, the pearl hid in the field. Every line is drawn to him as the proper center. All types and shadows point to him and all the promises run in him. Jesus Christ is really and truly God and yet very man, God and man in one person. And is this not a mystery? So the scope or focus of Jacob's ladder, and the blessings and promises of God is Christ as the seed of Jacob who will establish a kingdom encompassing all of creation, filled with worshipers who have a restored relationship with God, access to the throne in heaven, the very presence of God with us, Emmanuel, by means of Christ our Savior. The blessing of Jacob was a gospel promise of the coming Christ the one and only mediator between God and man. And for this reason, we can read Genesis 28 and be encouraged. Just as God promised to give Jacob a multitude of descendants, so he has promised Christ a multitude. He is indeed an assembly of peoples throughout time and space, the church of the firstborn gathered to him as our head. Just as God promised to give Jacob and his descendants the land of Canaan, so he has promised Christ all things. His large and great dominion shall from sea to sea extend, and from the river shall reach forth unto earth's utmost end. And we shall partake of that inheritance in him. And just as God promised to be with Jacob, to keep him and to preserve him, to provide for him and to safely bring him again to his father's house, so Christ has promised to be with us to the end of the age, to provide all our needs and to bring us safely to his Father's house in glory. We have received a surety of that presence, the Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of our inheritance in the kingdom. So we can have the same assurance that Jacob had in the promises of God, that what he has promised, he will do. The nations will be blessed The elect will be gathered from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and Christ will reign. The nations will be blessed. The elect will be gathered from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Christ will reign from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So the only question that remains then is will we respond as Jacob did? Will we dedicate ourselves to worship with a solemn vow? Our baptism is a sort of vow, a public declaration that we belong to Christ and will worship Him to the end. 
Our church covenant is a vow that we will worship together, bring a tithe of all he blesses us with, and proclaim his name to the nations that they too might be blessed. So let us raise our Ebenezer, our stone of remembrance. Yes, even the stone here has Christ as its scope, for he is our rock of salvation and the chief cornerstone on which the rest of us as living stones are being built up, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace. May he reign eternal with justice and righteousness. Let's pray.